So we're on our second part series uh, on display, and uh, it's about relationships. And so if you're here today and you are not married, uh, that's okay. There's an opportunity for you to gather some stuff from this uh, from a relational perspective. So, you know, say one day you say, well, I'm too young, I'm not married yet. Or uh, you may say, well, you know, I'm not married I'm an adult and I'm not married. Well, uh, there are some relational things that you can apply here uh, today that I certainly think will be helpful. So we will be in Luke chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can grab the Pew Bible in front of you and turn to page 1187, page 1187, and that will get you right to where you need to be. So we'll be in Luke chapter 6 today as we look at On Display Part 2. Page 1187. Let's ask God to bless our time together as we start, and uh, we'll see what He has in store for us. God, we bow before You this morning. Uh, God, we declare that You are the expert on relationships. And uh, God, in so many ways, we fall short. And so this morning, Lord, as we look to Your Word, uh, God, will You give us direction? Will You give us clarity? Uh, Lord, will You show us the things that You want us to see? God, we pray today for eyes to see and ears to hear. And God, I pray for courage to apply the things that you show us today. Uh, Lord, I pray for every marriage in the room, for every person in relationship, which certainly covers all of us. God, that you would help us to see the areas of growth that you have for us and the way that you'd have for us to be. Lord, we pray that you will change us through today. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we talk about marriage, many people have a lot of different opinions about what marriage is and what marriage looks like. And so as we look at the marriage series today, I want to give you a couple of definitions of what people say marriage is. It's been said that marriage is just a fancy word for a woman adopting an overgrown male child who cannot be handled by his parents anymore. Now don't amen, okay? I don't want to create any problems for you. Uh, Albert, Albert Einstein is credited with saying men marry women with the hope that they will never change and women marry men with the hope that they will change. Invariably, they are both disappointed. It's been said that uh, the most important four words of a successful marriage is I'll do the dishes. Uh, so as we talk about relationships and marriage today, I know in the first service there was uh, there was some tension in the air, you know, it was, uh, there was, there, you know, people, I guess they felt like if I nod or agree or amen, then people may think my marriage is broken or I might get in trouble by my spouse. And so this is just a conversation that we're going to have about what the Bible says about relationships. And so just let your guard down. Everyone in the room knows that your marriage is broken. Okay. Cause everybody's marriage is broken. And we all know relationally that we have problems and that we have to work through that. That's what Pastor Tony spent an hour talking about last Sunday was that when sinners join a marriage, when sinners say, I do. And so we're all a part of that. And so I think it's instructive for us today to look at a few things that will help us relationally as we specifically look at marriage. One of the best wedding gifts that God gave us was a full-length mirror called our spouse. Had there been a card attached, it would have said, here's to helping you discover what you are really like. Can I get an amen, right? Oftentimes, our spouses can act as fruit inspectors, right? Things that we are or are not doing correctly. 
Well, the problem is that oftentimes we don't like what we're actually doing and we don't like who we actually are. And so we tend to act out and normally we act out against those who are closest to us. And so what marriage does is it forces us to view ourselves honestly and to consider that we, in fact, do have character flaws. And a lot of those are selfishness. Sometimes they're anti-Christian attitudes. And so what our spouse does and their differences is it encourages us to grow into who God created us to be. Now, it's very important for you to know who you are. And I think a lot of times as we go into marriage, we have these expectations, which we'll talk about in a second, and we have these things that we think our spouse should be like. And so we'll start by having a moment of confession for Matt, okay? For myself, I have very high expectations. Uh, I expect, uh, as you know, you've heard in messages in the past, I expect a lot for myself. And so I have high expectations for me. But I also have high expectations for you and for my spouse because I, I'm not expecting you to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. And so in fairness, the bar is really high for both of us, both for me and for you. And unfortunately for me, it's rare to achieve my own high expectations. And when I do achieve my own expectations, then I say, well, you should have done that. You set the bar. Of course you should have done it. And so what happens is when I don't achieve my own expectations or when someone else doesn't achieve my expectations, I have to guard against resentment because I can be upset about someone not achieving an expectation that I set for them, both for myself and for people that are around me. In my world, there's always something that needs to be done. There's always a list. I can always look at a situation and say, well, here's what I would do differently. And oftentimes my mind tells me that I would do it better. At the house, there's always something, there's always a list of things that need taken care of. Uh, the yard needs to be mowed. I need to pressure wash. Uh, yesterday I changed out a light switch. There's always something in my world that I need to do, that I need to take care of. And so in the moments uh, of free time, if you will, they're filled with things that need to be accomplished. Details are very important to me. I like details. I pay attention to details. Uh, in my life, I have a lot of self-discipline, and so it's very easy for me to have a routine. It's very <clears throat> easy for me to have a schedule. If I have a workout routine or an exercise routine, it's very simple for me to do that. Uh, I started getting up early in the mornings and exercising uh, a few months back, and that is very simple for me because I said, this is what I'm going to do, and so I do it. I don't think twice about doing it. Details, that matters to me. But I'm also bothered when it comes to, uh, when it comes to uh, resentment, I have a difficult time letting go of that. I have a difficult, if, if something is done to me, said to me or done to me, I have a hard time getting over that. And so I've discovered this about myself in the marriage relationship, that there are times when Melanie, my wife, makes me mad or offends me or does something that I don't think that she should do. And so I've I've learned that this is how I typically respond to those in an unhealthy manner, and it helps me to learn and to grow how to respond in a healthy manner. I don't like it when people ignore or break the rules. For instance, it really bothers me when people pull up to the gas station 
And if your gas tank is on the right, the car with their gas tank on the left pulls up in the spot for the person with a gas tank on the right, and they move the hose to the other side of their car. That is breaking the rules, just so you know. There are arrows on the ground for a reason. And so every time, I, you know, like at Sam's, I get Sam, uh, gas at Sam's a lot. So they have a car, you know, there's an arrow going one way and an arrow uh, on the other side. They're both going the same way. There is no arrow facing me, just so you know, if this is you. And so every time I see someone especially going the wrong way to fill up their car, I want to go over there and say, well, congratulations, you're the only person who's ever thought of doing that. It bothers me, okay? I'm just confessing to you. It bothers me. So you will never see me doing that because that's not the way the arrows go. We had this conversation in a small group today, and I said, there is an arrow on your dashboard to tell you which side of the gas tank your gas tank is on. And that is the side that your gas pump should be on. So anyway, I'm just being honest with you, okay? There's things that I struggle with, things that are uh, difficult for me that I have to learn that, hey, you know what? That's not really, you know, Melanie, my wife, is the opposite of that. So it doesn't bother her when people don't follow the rules. She's just like, well, you know, it's no big deal. Maybe they're in a hurry. To which I respond, do you think I'm not in a hurry? But anyway, I digress. So I like details, okay? I like following the rules. And so what I've done is what, what's happened in my life is early on, I thought that everyone should be like me. Or the other side is that I should be like everyone else. That there's a point of growth to where we're all becoming the same. But that's not true. God made each of us unique, and He made each of us different, and so it's important that we learn how God made us so that we can relate to those that are around us, specifically our spouse. You see, what we don't know about ourselves can actually hurt both us and the relationships that are around us. I used to see someone act in a way that I perceived as good or godly, and I would think to myself, I need to act like them. I need to act the way that they're acting, and then I'll be who God wants me to be. Well, that's incorrect thinking. I don't need to act like you, and you don't need to act like me. I need to act like, and you need to act like, the way God intends for us to act like, the way that He created us to be. Now, there's a lot of things, and we won't get into it today, uh, that shape that, okay? There's a lot of ways that your personality is formed, uh, whether it's negative or positive experiences in your past. It, it shapes or formulates who you are today. And so what we have to learn to do, what I had to learn to do, was to get out of my own way. That there are things in my life that are hindrances to me becoming who God wants me to be, and they are hindrances to the relationships that are around me, again, specifically my spouse. And so it begins with self-knowledge of discovering who you really are. You see, most people assume they understand who they really are, when they actually don't know who they are at all, they're just living from the past. And so they don't question the lens in which they see the world, how it shaped their world, or even if their vision of reality is distorted or true. You know, there's the story of the newlywed couple who got married and uh, they got home from their honeymoon and the wife said, well, I want to do something special. I want to show you that I love you and that I'm a good cook, so I'm going to cook our first meal at home together. And so they go in, she's going to make meatloaf, and so they go into the kitchen, and the husband says, well, I love you, and I want to watch, and so I want to see 
you know, I want to see everything that you do. And so they go to the kitchen, and she gets the meatloaf out, and she cuts the end off of it, uh, and she sticks it in the pan. And he says, I want to know everything about you. Tell me, why did you cut the meatloaf, uh, the end of the meatloaf off? And she said, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure. My mom has always done it that way before. Let's call her and ask her. And so they call mom on the phone and say, hey, mom, uh, I'm making meatloaf. And, you know, my husband wants to know why I cut the end of the meatloaf off. Uh, can you tell me why I learned that from you? And so the mom said, you know, that's a great question. I've always done it that way. I really don't know why I learned it from my mom. So let's call grandma and ask her why she cuts the end of the meatloaf off. And so they get grandma on the phone. They call her, hey, listen, you know, granddaughter's making a, a first meal for her husband, and they cut the meatloaf end off, and we want to know why you did that because we both learned it from you. Well, grandma started laughing, and she said, I cannot believe this. She said, actually, the reason that I always cut the end of the meatloaf off is because my pan was too short. And so for generations, people were cutting the end of the meatloaf off because it didn't fit in grandma's pan. Well, pans have gotten bigger since then. Have you been to McDonald's, right? Everything's supersized. And so, but we do things because it's just the way that we've been learned or trained or, you know, it's always been done in the past. And so the truth of the matter is the things that helped us survive as kids are often the things that are holding us back as adults. And as long as we stay in the dark about how we see the world, and the wounds and the beliefs that have shaped who we are, we become prisoners of our own history. We have to discover how God created us in order for us to become who God created us to be. And so what we have to do is we have to have self-discovery. We have to have the knowledge of who we are because without the knowledge of who we are, we're never going to find out who God wants us to be. And so the first product of this self-knowledge, if you will, is humility. That we've got to realize that, you know what, we don't have all the answers. That we do, in fact, have mistakes. That we do, in fact, uh, have uh, broken parts of our marriage uh, and broken parts of our character uh, that we need to grow in, that we need to be shaped and changed into who God wants us to be. Uh, there's a famous quote by Thomas Merton that says, Sooner or later we must distinguish between what we are not and what we are. We must accept the fact that we are not what we would like to be. We would all agree with that. We must cast off our false exterior self like the cheap and showy garment that it is. We must find our real self in its elemental poverty, but also in its great and very simple dignity, created to be a child of God and capable of loving with something of God's own sincerity and His unselfishness. Look, we don't have it all figured out. And we can all learn how to be better relationally. And so that's what we're going to do today is we're going to jump into Scripture and see what it is that God wants to teach us about how to relate both in relationships and in marriage. So in Luke chapter 6, we'll begin in verse 27. Luke chapter 6 and verse 27. The Bible says, uh, and this is Jesus talking, He says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Now I know what you're thinking Wait a minute, I thought this was a marriage series. Well, it is. Stay with me. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. Well, this is definitely not the marriage part, okay? To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And 
from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Verse 34, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to return and your reward will be great. I'm sorry, even sinners lend to sinners and to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good, verse 35, lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And so what Jesus is teaching us here is that if you and I can start with the hardest, if we can love our enemies, if we can bless those who curse us, well, then we should get really good at the easy, those who love us. When we know how to deal with committed enemies, then we ought to know how to deal with occasional enemies. Now, we again, we've all had disagreements in our relationships. And as Pastor Tony talked about last week, our enemy is not our spouse. We are our own enemy. And so the first blank on your handout here, the goal is not for your spouse to be who you want them to be, but for them to be who God wants them to be. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Who did God create my spouse to be? Who, does he, who is he making her into? Now, it's easy for you and I to have an opinion about that, and normally it benefits us, right? We say, well, God made them to do this for me, or God used them to, to be this type to me. I remember early on in our marriage, I would, you know, someone would say something that I thought was offensive, and, and I would say, oh, I can't believe they said that. And Melanie, my wife, she would say, well, maybe they didn't mean it that way. And I remember thinking, well, of course they meant it that way. Why don't you see it the way that I see it? And I realized that Melanie is seeing things different than the way that I see things. That she's seeing things the way that God wired her to see things. And it's not the way that I want her to see it sometimes. And so God has used her to teach me how to see things from a different perspective. Because my perspective is not always right. Now I want to believe that, but it's not the truth. And so remember the first step to self-knowledge is humility and realizing that you don't have all the answers. And so God has used her to help me see the other side of the coin, if you will. And so now, oftentimes, I've learned from that. And oftentimes, I'll say, hey, how do you see this situation? Because this is how I see it. And a lot of times, it's not the same way. And so it's helped me to learn to see things the way that God would have me to see from a different perspective. You see, marriage is a gift from God. I want you to think about the first relationship. Think about Adam. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, Adam was created. The Bible says that God created Adam. He took the dust of the earth, and he created him. Now, in Adam's current form in Genesis chapter 2, he is perfect, okay? No sin has entered into humanity yet, and we have the picture of Adam the man in perfection, and what does God say to Adam in perfection pre-fall? 
This is what he says in, in chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper that is fit for him. So in Adam's perfection, God gave him a wife. Think about that. God gave Adam a wife in his perfection. And so God said in a perfect relationship, it is good for two people to be together. That is amazing, isn't it? It wasn't the fall that God said, well, Adam can't do it on his own, so we're going to have to send somebody in there to help him out. Now, you know, that's probably true. But the case of the matter is Adam was perfect here. And God sends in Eve and says, hey, he shouldn't be alone. I will make a helper that is fit for him. And so in the picture enters Eve. And so now we have both Adam and Eve, and God says they're good for them to be together. You see, how God made you and how God made your spouse is not how you think God should have done it. If, if you think about relationships, uh, it is very common that opposites attract. Now, I, I'll use, you know, again, my own relationship, my own marriage. Uh, my wife is the direct opposite of me, direct opposite. Oftentimes, I can be wound tight. I can be high strung. I'm very high energy. I'm very detail-oriented. I'm very structured. Whereas Melanie's just kind of take it with the flow. She's easygoing. It's hard to get her riled up. She always sees the positive side of things. And so it's true in my relationship. Opposites do attract. And in the dating process, we tend to be drawn to people who complement our personality. Well, that's because there are character deficiencies in your life and in mine because of the fall. And what God is doing is he's redeeming those qualities in you through that relationship. And so God is using an outside influence to redeem the character flaw that you have within your life. Same for me. And so we have these ways that, you know, what God does is he begins to shape us. The Bible says that when uh, you get married, that you will leave your, uh, your family and cleave to your wife. The, the two will become one. And the Bible says that what God puts together, no man can separate. And so when you become one with your spouse, you go from me to we. And you don't think about things the same way. Now, before Melly and I were married, I lived alone. And so I had a lot of bachelor tendencies, right? I had a deep fryer, uh, whatever it's called, you know, where you heat it up and the oil's in there popping. And I would fry chicken. I love chicken. And so I had chicken all the time. And it was chicken nuggets and chicken strips and fried chicken sandwiches. I mean, chicken and fries will solve anybody's problem, right? And so that's all I would eat. And I, I had snacks galore. I drank Coca-Cola and root beer. And whenever I wanted, I would stay up late. I, I did whatever I wanted. And then I got married, right? And then I went from what do I want to, okay, what's best for us? And so you began to see things a little bit differently. There's a scientific term for that, and it's called neuroplasticity. You can look it up. And what that means is that your brain develops these groove patterns to where you do the same thing over and over to where it becomes a habit, and then you don't think about it anymore. Again, neuroplasticity. And it's where you have these grooves or these, uh, these routines that are created in your brainwave patterns. Case in point. The way if you drove to church today, the way that you drove is the same way you always drive. You came the same path every single time that you come to church here. I drive the same way every single time I come to church here. What that means is that I don't make any decisions on the way here. 
So I don't decide whether or not I should turn left or right. I don't have to. I've been this way before. I have a mental pattern in my mind of decision-making to where I automatically do the same thing over and over and over. Same thing with where you're sitting. You didn't think about, where should I sit today? You sat in the same place you always sit. It's just the way your brain works. And so you have these patterns of familiarity that you began to create in your mind. How many times have you been driving somewhere and you got there and then you, then you said, I don't remember driving here. I don't remember any stop along. I don't remember anything along the way. It happens all the time. It's because your brain is in autopilot, and you begin to think of things uh, naturally or in routine that you normally wouldn't think. Well, in marriage, that same thing happens. And so you go from me to we. Now, the bad news is it doesn't happen overnight. The good news is it does happen, but it typically takes about 10 years for that to happen. So you gotta, you got to work through that. You got to struggle through that. I'll be married 18 years in November. And so you got to work through that. And so now we, we think alike and we say some of the same things. And if you've been married for, you know, any period of time, you can relate to that. And so it's these groove patterns that begin to take place or shape in our brains. You see, when we begin to act in the way that God wants our spouse, when we begin to encourage the way that our spouse would act in a way that honors God, instead of the way that we want them to act, well, then we began to grow. We began to see things from a different perspective. We're happiest and we're most fulfilled when we draw meaning and fulfillment in becoming better ourselves instead of trying to make our spouse better. And so the way that we do that is we have to align ourselves with the gospel and how the gospel interacts with us and how we interact with the gospel. And so the goal is not for your spouse to be who you want them to be, but it's for them to be who God wants them to be. Well, how do we do that? Well, what is the path of starting to uh, accomplish that? Well, number one, it's to start by giving what you and I desperately need to receive. How can you begin to encourage your spouse to be who God wants them to be instead of who you want them to be. Well, number one, it is start by giving what you desperately need to receive. Several years ago, when our little boy Noah was young, he was uh, three or four at the time, and Melanie was teaching Noah about mercy, about not getting what you do deserve. Mercy, not getting what you do deserve. And so we were talking about mercy, and he had gotten in trouble, and uh, he had gotten uh, punished, and so when uh, a few weeks later, fast forward, we're at the grocery store, and he acted up again. And so he's acting up, and so Melanie said, hey, look, when we get home, buddy, you are in trouble. You are going to get it. And so we get to the house, and Melanie sits him down, and she says, look, you know you weren't supposed to do that. I've told you a thousand times. You wouldn't listen. And she said, so now you've got you've to take the punishment. And little Noah, three or four years old at the time, he looked up to Melanie, and he says, Mom, would you show me mercy? Now, what do you do when a little three or four-year-old says, would you show me mercy? Right? Mercy. Not getting what we deserve. Now, when we think about mercy as it relates to our relationship, first of all, with God vertically before it relates horizontally with people, is that we all desperately need mercy. Mercy. That, listen, you don't want what you deserve. 
I don't want what I deserve. Pastor Tony spent an hour last week talking about the fact that every one of us are sinners and the wages of sin is death. That every one of us deserves to be separated from God. But yet God in His mercy, Romans 5, 8, while yet we were sinners, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. So listen, you want mercy. You want mercy. Mercy is to be received. Mercy is to be enjoyed. Can I get an amen? Mercy is to be celebrated. But mercy is to be also shared. You see, mercy is most necessary when we face the brokenness of the person that we married. Because we desperately need mercy. We need to give mercy. Look what the Bible says in uh, verse 31. He says, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Or as you grew up with a golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. In other words, if you want mercy, show it. He says in verse 36, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And so Jesus is saying here that if you expect to receive mercy, you better be giving mercy. The Bible says in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, do you presume on the riches of His kindness and uh, forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, if it was the kindness of Jesus that drew you to God, a sinner, you and I, sinners, hell-bent on opposing God, then why in the world would not kindness be your first line of defense? You see, this is not an, simply an action. Mercy is an attitude. Look what he says. He says, God is merciful, our Father. God doesn't just dispense mercy. God is merciful. And so the first step for us to helping enable our spouse to be who God created them to be is to give what we desperately need to receive, mercy. Number two, how do we do it? Well, we have to change our expectations. We have to change our expectations. You'll never find a spouse who is not affected in some way by the reality of the fall. Now, this is where you would think that I would give an example of the reality of the fall of my spouse. But I'm too smart for that. And that's why I've been married for almost 18 years. No, I'm just kidding. But we all have failures. And what often takes place in our lives is that we see the failures as differences. And we say, well, because you failed, you're different than me. Because you act in a certain way that I don't agree with, then you're different than me. And so instead of celebrating the differences, we argue about the differences. Well, I can't believe that's the way you do it, or I can't believe that's what you did. And that's not helpful. That's not enabling your spouse to become who God wants them to be. God made them different than you. And so what we ought to do is we ought to celebrate the differences of the personalities that God made them to be. And as we celebrate those differences, it helps us to become who God wants us to be as we learn the other side of the coin, if you will. But it also encourages them to be who God wants them to be. You see, oftentimes in relationships, you hear the term irreconcilable differences. You ever heard that before? Well, listen, it is not the presence of differences, but it is the absence of mercy that makes problems irreconcilable. It is the absence of mercy that makes, makes your differences irreconcilable. If God can forgive you, you can forgive them, whatever it may be. 
And so you have to show mercy in your relationships as you celebrate those differences. It's been said that if you treat a man as he is, he will stay as he is. But if you treat him as if he were what he ought to be and what he could be, he will become the bigger and better man. And so what if you began to treat your spouse the way that they ought to be treated, the way that God intends for them to be treated, opposed to the way that you think they should be? It would make a difference. You see, what happens in, in differences, though, is that we see the differences in relationships and we assume how we think that they should act, and we assume the way that we think they should think, and we assume the way that we think they should respond, and what happens is that we commit a suicide, is that we get to the point to where we have actually created a problem because they're not acting the way that we think they should act. It's called a suicide. We all do it. And we act in a way that, we, well, here's how you should have responded to that situation. And because you didn't act the way I thought you should act, now I'm mad at you and we have a, a disagreement or a difficulty. You see, we have to be willing to see life from our spouse's perspective. This will give you insight into, where, into why your spouse does the things that they do. When you learn more about yourself, and you learn about the personality of your spouse, then it's, you're able to more celebrate those differences. You see, there's only three types of people in the room this morning. I'm going to give you the three different personality types, and you're going to fall into one of those categories, and I'm going to give you an example of those. You see, the first personality type in the room today is the positive outlook group. The positive outlook group. Maybe you're married to someone who's like this, that they have a positive outlook about everything. They see the good and everything. Maybe even sometimes they're obnoxiously positive. And they say, no, it's fine, it's okay, and they always see the good in that. Well, now, there's a healthy way to do that and an unhealthy way to do it. The healthy way, of course, is to always see the good. The unhealthy way, and oftentimes manifests itself, is that people in the positive outlook group will see things positively only because they want to avoid pain. And so they don't want anything bad to happen, and so they just cover everything with positivity. Even if it's not positive, they make it positive so there will be no pain in their life, and so they avoid. It's very common uh, to have a positive outlook. These people are easygoing. Uh, they're typically happy-go-lucky, uh, and they always try to see things uh, glass half full. So positive outlook group. I would ask you to raise your hand, but that is not the larger part of the room. There is the competency group. I fall, now Melanie is in the positive outlook group. My spouse is positive outlook. She sees everything half full, everything's rose-colored glasses. That's how God made her. I'm in the competency group. So the competency group is someone, if you resonated with how I described myself earlier, you're in the competency group. They, we want to approach disappointment with competency. And so if there's a disagreement or a problem, then what I began to do is I began to analyze the situation and say, well, here's where you went wrong, or here's the problem, or here's the situation that should have been done differently. And so I see things very objectively. I've coached my children in every sport ever since they've been born. And I am not the coach who plays my child because uh, I, they're my child. I'm the coach who plays the best player. And so I'm very objective about everything in my life. I try to be because that's my personality. And so in the competency group, we look at things very objectively. But 
the negative side of that is that we tend to repress feelings. And so we'll plow through just to stay on task. So if there's, if there's a disagreement in a relationship, I'm going to give the facts. I'm going to say, well, here's what you said, and I'm going to state it word for word, and then I'm going to say, here's what I said. That's the competency group. Now, there is a healthy and unhealthy version of both of those. So there's the positive outlook, which is my wife. There's the competency group, which is me. I'm being very honest with you, all right? So in just a few minutes, all you're going to get up here and tell all of your shortcomings. Number three, and probably a larger portion of the room, is the reactive group. This is the more common group, the reactive group. Emotional realness with strong reactions to situations. And so they act emotional about the situation. They say, well, this is how I feel. And so they respond out of feeling. And sometimes it can be over the top. Uh, you, it's hard to have a conversation at, in depth with someone who is in the reactive group if they're unhealthy because they get highly emotional and then the, the conversation is over with. They, they, the unhealthy side of that is that they fear being without support and so they act out emotionally either to prevent being in that situation or they act out emotionally because they've been damaged in the previous uh, encounters. So positive outlook, competency, or reactive. Uh, to this afternoon when you get a chance, there's some questions on the back of your handout. And uh, one of the questions is, which one of those do you resonate with? It would be uh, healthy for you to ask your spouse, which one do you think that I am? And that way you could kind of get some context about maybe who you are and how you see life. You see, what, what happens is when we change our expectations, it allows us to be able to see things from a different perspective. Instead of seeking fulfillment from that relationship that was never intended to fulfill us. You see, our expectations oftentimes is for our spouse to fulfill a relational void that we have in our life that only Jesus was meant to fill. And so you look to your spouse for things that only Jesus was meant to give you. And then you become disappointed because they don't give you what they were never intended to give you. Does that make sense? And so we have to look to Jesus first. The gospel is what changes us. And so we need to change our expectations. And then number three is that we need to be, we need to not settle for what works, but instead pursue God's best. Now, this happens in marriages so oftentimes, and it's really a travesty, is that people will just settle. Well, that's just the way we are, so it's just the way it is. Well, that's just the way my husband is, or that's just the way my wife is. No, that is not how God created marriage. He did not create relationships to settle. You see, it all goes back to what Pastor Tony said last week, and that is that our theology governs our entire life. And so it determines how you live your marriage. And what you believe to be true about God is what you believe to be true about your marriage and about relationships. You see, you have to have right theology, and you can't have right theology without context. You have to have other people in your life that you are gaining godly wisdom from that can help you decide if what is happening in your marriage is healthy or harmful. Look, it's easy to create your own island and make your own rules up and enforce your own rules on your own island because who's going to tell you any different? But that's not healthy. 
And that's not how God created you to be. God created us to live in community. He created us to live in relationship. Remember, Eve was created to be a helpmate to Adam when Adam was perfect. And so God created us to be in relationship. So I'm going to share with you a few things that over the years I've heard people say or I've seen happen that is settling instead of pursuing God's best. Oftentimes, unfortunately, we see where the wife or the mom, uh, the wife and the mom is the spiritual leader of the home. That is not how God intended for it to be. Father, dad, husband, if you are not the spiritual leader of your family, you are not operating in the giftedness in which God created you to operate. He made you to be, God made you to be a man. And the man is the leader of the family. He is the leader of the spousal, the relation, the marriage relationship. The other day, me and my little boy were out uh, replacing some stairs on their clubhouse. And I told him, guys do hard things, buddy. All right, look, God made us to be leaders. God made us to be protectors. God made us to be providers. That's how God made us. And so as a man, you are intended to be the spiritual leader of your home. That is not your wife's job. And what's going to happen is when we don't lead our sons generationally as the spiritual leaders of our home, we're going to end up with a society without spiritual leaders. Now, I'm not saying that women can't be spiritual leaders. What I am saying is that God created the man to be the spiritual leader of the home. And God intends for men to step up and do that. And so, men, if you're here this morning and you're not the spiritual leader of your home, you are settling. And God's best is that you be the leader. And so maybe you say, well, I don't know how to do that. That's where community comes in, where God puts people around you and they help you and they teach you and you learn how to be who God created you to be, the spiritual head of the household. Number two in marriages, you often see where people say, uh, you ask, you know, hey, what's going on with this situation? And they say, I don't ask questions. What does that even mean? I don't ask questions. Why? Because the Bible says that when you get married, that you leave your family and you cleave to your spouse and that two become one. And so why is something happening in your relationship that you're not aware of? I don't ask questions. Well, you should. You should start asking some questions about what's going on in life because God put you together, and he didn't put you together to live differently. He put you together to live together. And so start asking questions. The third thing that you often see is tag team parenting where one parent parents and then the other one comes into the picture and then parent number one leaves and parent number two becomes the parent of the day. That is not how God created the family to be. God created the family to be a unit, that they would work cohesively together, that again the two would become one, and so that you, there is not one who's the authoritative figure and one who is the good cop, bad cop. That's not how that works. God puts you together to be the parent. God puts you together to be the leader of your family, and so you should be a cohesive unit, and you should decide before you have kids or start today if you haven't and say, here's how we're going to parent, and here's the absolutes in our life that we're not going to compromise. And it's not going to be subjective or situational or you whatever you think. No, we're going to work together, and we're going to make the decisions together. We're not going to tag team parent where you do it half the time and I do it the other half. We're going to do it together. And number four, 
where you see oftentimes where only one person in the family makes all the decisions. Well, you know, hey, you guys want to get together and, and uh, do something, or hey, do you want to do this, or hey, do you want to do that? I'm not sure I'll have to ask my spouse. And they make all the decisions. Again, two become one, that you work together to make those decisions, that you collaborate because, again, God has put you together. And so how, how does that play out? You say, well, you know, thank you for sharing that, but, well, what does the Bible say about it? Well, good question. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. The Bible says, husbands, love your wives. How? How should husbands love their wives? The same as the opposite. How should wives love their husbands? Well, Jesus gave us a great example. He said, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Have you ever thought about this? Think about this with me. God chose Israel. He chose Israel. Not because they were good. Not because they were obedient. Not because they were faithful. He chose Israel. Why? Because he chose Israel. And all throughout the Old Testament, they're wandering in the wilderness, and they're betraying God, and they've got ungodly kings, and so on and so forth. And God sends prophet after prophet after prophet to say, I love you, come back, I love you, come back, I love you, come back. And he remained faithful to the nation of Israel. But the nation of Israel was not faithful to God. So don't say, well, God doesn't know what my marriage is like. Really? Because the people that he gave himself to, the, the people that he gave his son for, have not been faithful to him. So for us to say that God doesn't know what I'm going through, that's not true. God could have simply said, I'm not tying myself to anybody because all of those people down there are sinners. But that is not what he did. He committed himself to Israel. And guess what? He's still committed. Have you looked at Israel lately? Right? And for us, we're grafted in, that God has grafted us in to be a part of the chosen, the ones that have been forgiven. And he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. Why did he do that? Because it is as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, cleanse her by the washing of the water of the word. That he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That, he might, that she might be holy and without blemish. Listen, how does that apply to you and me today? Jesus gave himself. Jesus cleansed and he sanctified. That's what he's doing to the church, to us today. He will present us. When we stand before God the Father, it will not be on your merit that you stand before God the Father, but only because of justification of the gift of forgiveness that was paid on the cross by Jesus Christ that you and I will stand before Jesus Christ and be presented holy and blameless, not because of your merit or mine, but because of Jesus. That's what Jesus did for the church. How does that apply to you and me in marriage today? Well, I'll tell you how it applies. In your marriage, you ought to be sacrificial. You see, God's best for marriage is a marriage that is sacrificial and putting the spouse before yourself. Jesus took the form of a servant. Jesus said the last will be first and the first will be last. Jesus gave of himself. You should give of yours. God's best for marriage is sacrificial. Number two, God's best for marriage is that he was willing to work. 
Jesus cleansed. Jesus is sanctifying. For you and I and our marriages, we ought to be willing to work both for the marriage and through the difficulties that we'll face because that's what Jesus did for you. Doesn't the Bible say that, say that he makes his mercies new every day for you and for me? Why wouldn't we do the same for our spouse? Number three, God's best in marriage is that it would be intentional. The Bible says that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Jesus, he will present us before God the Father. It says in splendor, without spot or any such thing. Why did he do that? That she might be holy and without blemish. You see, God's best for marriage is that you would be intentional about including both of you. That it's not just a me, but it's a we. You see, that's what God has done for us. God is redeeming humanity through people. God has, there is no plan B for the gospel. It is the church. It is the local body of believers in which God will dispense his mercy and grace and forgiveness to a lost and dying world. It is people who follow Jesus. It's you and it's me. That's how God is redeeming humanity. And he was intentional about including you. And he was intentional about including me. It is the perfect picture of how our relationships ought to be with our spouses, is that we ought to be intentional about including, that God is intentionally including us in redemption, and that we ought to participate in that plan through the covenant of marriage. Why did he do that? Well, it was all for the purpose of holiness. You see, the Bible says that God loves us just the way that he is, but he refuses to leave us that way. His desire is that we would become just like Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. His desire that we would be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus. So what is all of this for? Well, here's a question for you to think about this week. What if marriage was never to make you happy, but it was to make you holy? What if God is refining you and shaping your holiness through marriage? I want to encourage you this week to think through these questions on the back of the handout and be honest with yourself. It would be a good exercise for you and your spouse to spend some time talking about, to learn more about who you are and how God made you, and to learn more about your spouse and how God made your spouse so that you can rightly relate to each other in order for you and your spouse to become who God created you to be. Amen?